Welcome back to Winning with Connections, the WWC Global Podcast. This is our take on government contracting and small business success with interviews from top experts and the people that make the industry move. On this episode, I get to talk to Jenny Clark with Solvability. Jenny has been in the industry, I won't say how long, you can say how long if you'd like to, Jenny, and has been an incredible force for good around small business contracting in the government contracting universe in Tampa and now beyond. So Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Lauren, thank you so much for having me today. So tell me, we've been kind of affiliated with you for years in various different roles as you've expanded solvability from what it kind of first was into now in this post-COVID world or this you know COVID world, uh, you've done a lot of it kind of remotely as well. But talk to me about kind of what solvability is and what you do. Thanks so much, Lauren. Solvability is about showing small businesses in federal contracting how to be successful. There's so many things that they do need. What I try to do is bring together a community so they can access that those resources. And my main focus is the financial side, which I call financial logistics, how to get financial freedom through federal contracting. So the services that I offer are, generally speaking, showing them how to do the accounting, showing them how to do basic pricing, Mm -hmm. talking to them about indirect rates. And people are always asking me about DCAA, Defense Contract Audit Agency, compliance. So it's encompassing all of those things. And you did say, yeah, I've been around doing this for an awfully long time, and it's getting closer to 40 than it was to, than 30, but I've been in it over 30 years. And I spent the early part of my career in Huntsville and was in Tampa Bay 2012 and just moved to Atlanta. And what I'm finding is there's so many small businesses looking for answers in federal contracting, and we need to give them access to that community so that they know about the procurement technical assistance centers and other resources that are brought to them by free, but also being able to see for them, they need to see people like you, Lauren, that have been successful and are willing to share your success. So thank you so much for doing this entire podcast series. Yeah, we're, we're always happy to do it. I talk a lot, so it's it's pretty easy for me to do this. And and again, we got so much help. Um, I've said this on the podcast multiple times. We got so much help from so many people that it is kind of our duty to, to give back. Uh, and we're just doing it with new technology instead of just the one-on-ones that we used to do from those firms who mentored us and from the firms we've been mentoring for years. But so you mentioned the PTAC and I had on the podcast, Karen Krimsky, who is from the PTAC here in Tampa. What you do is work kind of in concert with the PTAC. The PTAC does certain things and Karen talked a lot about what they can and can't do on her podcast, but you guys kind of take it to the next level after that, right? You're right about that. Um, I've definitely worked with Karen. I send a lot of people her way because she's such an amazing resource. And those PTACs are across the country. And people should be using that resource because we're paying for that as taxpayers. But what I do is when people get to a certain point, they want to move forward. And I tell them they shouldn't start with me as the next point to move forward. They've got to talk next to people that can help them win government contracts. Because if they aren't winning work, there's no accounting needs to be done. And they certainly don't need to be compliant yet. That's the biggest part of it. So um, I want to help people move along to their next step. And I've 
I call myself the Oprah of federal contracting because <laughs> when somebody calls me, I want to find you that next person that you need to mm-hmm. get you to the next stage. And that's part of the reason why you and I have both been so involved in our communities. I know that you're involved in the Tampa Bay defense community with military affairs councils and other activities. And what I've done is taken, um, I call it the Tampa Bay defense news, which Debbie Miller is producing for me every month. And we're morphing that in now to the voice of GovCon. And we've got a LinkedIn group about that because that's really where most of the people that are needing help are showing up. Yeah. And I love being able to give them the guidance to get to the next place instead of them feeling like another door is slammed. And opening doors is what this is all about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you do, I, I, I know you do a lot on accounting and, and we can talk a little bit about that because that is a thicket when you get into government contracting that even most accountants don't understand or most people with an accounting background don't get it. But you do so much more than that, particularly in the in the Tampa Bay community around some of the the conferences that you've pulled together, uh, the convenings that you do now, your Freedom Friday that you do around all of this work. I'm amazed consistently at the Tampa Bay business community, particularly in GovCon, because we're all interdependent and intertwined. We all get a lot, even those of us who compete with each other get along really well and work effectively together as well, which is really neat in my mind. So let's talk a little bit about DCA accounting, because for those that actually have a government contract, it becomes something that you need to, you know, it's, it's a chicken and egg. You have to have the DCA accounting to get the government contract to some extent, uh, but then it really doesn't make sense to have DCA accounting until you get a government contract. But this thicket of DCAA accounting how do you get started in making sure that you're compliant? How do you, what's your first step in figuring this stuff out? Is it calling you? They don't have to call me. I'm going to tell them where they could go and look, and I'm happy to answer some questions about it. But what I always tell people to start with is go to DCAA's own website. That's dcaa.mil, M-I-L. Sometimes you have to look around for this document, but it's called Information for Contractors. Mm -hmm. And the last time I looked, they had a contractor checklist and you had to dig around. Um, But if anybody needs the link, they can contact me and I can tell you. So what it is, is about a 100 page document that's been around forever. And there's one chapter on DCAA accounting requirements Mm -hmm. that everybody uses. And that's the basic of what you have to do. And do you mind, Lauren, if I just kind of go through the components that those are? Oh, please do. That would be wonderful. Okay. So everybody needs to get their pencils out and I will give you a top level of what you need to do. A DCAA auditor is not going to knock on your door. They don't know you exist until you win a cost reimbursable or cost plus contract or you're competing for one. But the people that will ask you this information are the large primes. Whenever they send you a profile or a rep insert or any of that certifications that you have to do, one of their checkbox items more and more is going to be are you DCAA compliant? And if you don't know, they've got 30 other people in the same line and you just 
pop to the back of your line and you're going to be out of luck not being able to get on the team because you don't know the lingo. You don't know the the, the words, like all this acronym stuff, right? I mean, right. all the acronyms that we use. Right. So DCA compliance, you cannot go to a regular accountant and say, get me DCA compliant. And this is really true of everything we do in government contracting. Anytime that you see, here's some information for small business, if it doesn't say for federal contracting, that information is not specific enough for you to you to do any businesses. And I've always told people that government contracting, you don't sell to the government. You find a way to meet a requirement of a federal contract True. and find a way to deliver that. And there's so much different lingo, whether it's contract vehicles or what agencies. And, you know, you had to conquer all of that. Right, Lauren? I did. I, I mean, I got lucky. I had been I, I kind of grew up in the government space, so I understood it better than most. But, yeah, no, it, it is uh, DOD in particular is is an entirely different world in terms of the acronyms, the lingo. And then contracting is just an entirely different layer of that. Um, and understanding FARP and the DFAR or the, I remember when I was still in the White House doing regulatory reviews, there was the HUDAR, which is the HUD acquisition regulation. And I was completely puzzled by what the heck this HUDAR was. But, you know, every single agency has a different, a, a different set of their own rules, their own structure, their own requirements and their own acronyms. And it really is a different language. It's amazing. Well, you're so right about that, Lauren. As I tell people every day, every day I learn something new in government contracting. And I've been working in it since, what, 1984? And you just taught me something. I've never heard of the HUDAR. <laughs> um, and that's exactly why we're talking about it. There is no the government. Right. There are individual people that administer rules that allow federal contractors to compete and win on government contracts. And you've got to figure out where you're going to go and what you want to do with it, because it's like being an industry within an industry. Yeah. If you're in products, that's a totally different track for federal contracting. If yeah. you're in um, cybersecurity services, again, totally different track for government contracting. So industry within an industry means that you've got to really correspond to that federal customer. And if you're talking to people and you say the word FAR and different things like that, and they've got that glazed look, you're not talking to the right people. Yep. And what I find so upsetting is especially for small businesses that want to grow is they said, well, I went and talked to my banker and they said no. Well, that's because you got to go to a bank that understands federal contracts. And just like that podcast that yep. Donna did with Service First. Yeah, yep, absolutely. We it's funny. We went when we first started. I don't think there were many banks that were doing uh, government contracting or and certainly understood anything about government contracting. So we were going to the community banks and it, it really has changed, at least in the last 15 years I've seen, uh, where there are banks that really do focus on government contracting and do it well. The same thing with accountants. I think we went first to just a regular a small accounting firm here in Tampa and we ended up going to a different firm who didn't know much about government accounting, but at least was willing to 
kind of learn it with us. And now they're one of the kind of premier government accounting firms here in Tampa because they realized this is an entirely new niche environment and they needed to know it. But, you know, Tampa is kind of a center here of GovCon. And so that was a ripe area for accounting. But it is entirely different. And when you look at finance or accounting outside of the government, it, it, it doesn't look anything like finance or accounting in the government. Absolutely. And what you're talking about is a really important thing, because where do people find the resources to learn this? And they hope that they could go to their accountant. And I think one of the biggest things that's number one on the list of DCA compliance is you have to keep your books on an accrual basis accounting system. Mm-hmm. And most people like if you're not an accountant, you don't even know what that means. Right. Accountants right. or accountants would define cash basis is if it came out of the cash register today. It has a huge impact on what you pay in taxes, but in government contracting, you have to do what's called accrual basis, Mm -hmm. which means that you have to count things that you've spent, but you haven't paid the bill yet. Right. So it's kind of like I used to go shopping and when I would come home, I would leave all my new clothes in the car in the trunk where nobody could see them. (laughs) And and I'd wait until nobody else was in the house and I'd sneak them into my closet. (laughs) Now, if I was cash basis, I hadn't paid for that, so I wouldn't have to pay count it until I paid for my credit card in 30 days. Right. So on an accrual basis, that new wardrobe that I just bought doesn't count counts now. I can't right. hide it in my closet and pretend right. nothing happened. Right. Right. Exactly. And it is the the stuff that you can do. So it's funny. My my brother is. Uh, was the treasurer and one step down from the CFO at Kellogg's Corporation years ago. And he will tell me all the time, I'll look at our books every once in a while when he's over and take a look at it and go, why aren't you doing this? Or why aren't you doing that? And then he looks at me and goes, oh, because you're government contracting, right? That you can't do that. So deferred compensation uh, was one of those things, I think, that we couldn't do. You know, certain things that most firms do that make perfect sense, totally allowable under the tax code, not allowable under the government contracting rules and the accounting rules for government contractors. Well, I'm so glad you brought up that word allowable because that's one of the most confusing words in federal contracting. (laughs) Yes. So there's like eight ways to define that. And it kind of goes back to taxes as well. Most companies, when they're small, they're on cash basis for accounting. And so when your ta- your tax person does your accounting, your tax returns, they actually take your balance sheet and your profit and loss and make some adjustments so you don't pay taxes on money you haven't collected. Right. But on an accrual basis, you need to know where you are all the time because the government's going to say, how much money have you spent on some contract expense on this contract as of June the 30th? And they expect a good answer. Right. So the whole cash versus accrual is part of it. But the other thing is when you talk about this word allowable in government contracting. Mm-hmm. So there's this term called unallowable in government contracting, which means I, the government, am not paying for that. It's coming out of your company profit. And those things are entertainment, alcohol, sponsorships, gifts, bonuses over a certain amount, certain types of travel expense, first class airfare. 
And those things are called specifically unallowable or expressly unallowable cost. But they're tax deductible. They come off your tax returns. So people get very confused because they'll talk to six different accountants. And unless they're talking to somebody that understands federal contracting, we can't take them down the right path because you don't want to you can't run your government contracting books on cash basis. But at the same time, at the end of the year, this just this last year, I had advised somebody Whatever you do, don't send that $4 million invoice until January the 1st, 2020, and pay any sub you can at the end of December, because that's going to swing your taxable income by several million dollars right now. Lauren, I'm hearing the aha. Yes, we've done that. Could you explain it from your standpoint? That we, oh, no, we... No, Donna is crazy about this. So no, we are incredibly good at recognizing the difference between cash and accrual, the difference between kind of what a government contracting firm does. And I can freely admit that it is not me, it is Donna who does that um, and understands it so, so well. But there are differences in how you pay taxes, but also how you calculate your small business status, for example, based on those books, you've got to have someone who's really smart. I do have someone who's really smart and it is not me, thankfully, but I have someone who has a finance background as well as a legal background. So, so Donna has done that. So we didn't, we had the aha moments before, as opposed to the oopsie moments after for us, thankfully. Well, and I think that comes from the um, the level of precision that Donna is is known for um, being able to, from both of your standpoints, being so policy focused and oriented, you kind of knew what to look for and have done that. So how about I go on a little bit more about DCA compliance then? Please do. Oh, my God. We, so we got our first, I don't know if you know the story or not, we got our first DCAA, I don't think it was, I think technically it might have been an audit when we were a $700,000 uh, business um, in our first full year of execution on one contract, because our our prime actually called it on us because we got into a fight with the, the contract with PM at that prime. And he didn't think it was a good idea for us to be two you know, young spouses overseas and thought that he was going to, he was going to kind of cut our legs out from under us. Luckily, Donna is who Donna is, and she figured it out as we went. Most firms are not going to get that level of scrutiny, like you said, until they have a cost contract. But wow, did it put us in a, a different place, you know, for a under a million dollar a year business to be fully DCAA compliant with a letter. And that's something that, you know, was really, really helpful for our kind of growth trajectory. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up, Lauren, because that's exactly what DCA compliance becomes for companies is differentiator. Yep. And that's what government contracting is all about. Everything happens so that you can be be organized in certain buckets and yep. so that here's a barrier you can't cross over. So now I have fewer people that I have to review and deal with. Yep. So you're right. It was an absolute blessing to get it that early. And that's why what I do recommend to people is if they're interested to get set up 
as DCA compliant at the beginning, but you have to do it based on how much money do I have to learn and maybe you phase it in. Mm-hmm. But it's really pretty simple. The cost that you spend in delivering the contract, like the people that are working on the performance of the contract and the travel for the trips they're taking for the contract, those are all called direct cost. Mm-hmm. That means if I'm spending this only because I have this contract, then there's this whole group of costs that are called indirect cost. And just like anything else, it's like these are costs that are associated, but I would have had to spend them regardless about of whether I had this contract or and they're usually called indirect costs like fringe benefit costs, overhead expenses, and GNA or general and administrative expenses. And then also that last bucket that I just mentioned is unallowable costs. Like you're gonna have to have interest expense on bank loans to pay your bills in the early stages at least. So your government contract accounting format has to certainly break things out into a standard sections which are called cost of goods sold or direct cost, mm-hmm. and then your operating cost. Yep. They also expect you as you grow to be able to identify those indirect costs in what they call indirect pools mm-hmm. or indirect rates. And if you don't understand it, when you send in a bid, you're going to look like an idiot because you're going to use the wrong percentages. There is a game to this, and it's almost like, well, fringe benefit is going to be someplace between 10 and 30%, depending on your employees, whether you've got your payroll taxes, your group benefits, and your leave policy. Overhead is different for every company because I think that if you're doing business and all the employees that are working for you are working at a government site, there might not be much overhead. But Donna, you're doing business all over the world. And so the question for you is, what do we spend in recruiting and training and other things to make sure that we've got a top force a top level workforce all the time. Your investment in your product or service is overhead. So do you mind just telling people a little bit more about the kind of overhead you encounter? Yeah, no, so we have, you know, we actually have a, a couple of overhead pools based on kind of what kind of things that we do, right? So we've got a couple of different business lines that really looks like fairly different, but, that the stuff that we have against them is we have and and again Donna would probably be better at this than I am in terms of what goes into our GNA versus what goes into our overhead but things like the program manager overhead program manager not chargeable uh, but the program management office and the program manager for a contract or a set of contracts in one business line versus another those are in those overhead pools for the the different business lines, right? Whereas our kind of senior leadership is in the GNA pool because we cut across all the business lines. That's a great way to explain it. I did put you on the spot since Donna's go-to accounting person, but I wanted you to put it in terms that people could close their eyes and visualize what you're talking about. Overhead cost is that cost that you have to spend to support the business lines you're in. And if you're not in that business line, you don't spend it. But at the same time, it's what makes your company really good at supporting that customer. Right. And so overhead is a big gray area for every company. And I'm happy to explain it a little bit more. But what I'd really like to do is go on to the idea of general and administrative or GNA. Right. I just call that corporate expense. Yeah. So that's going to be 
the executive team, the cost of running accounting, human resources, all of those support functions, plus bank fees, legal fees, HR consultants, all of those different pieces of it are part of corporate. And so what I tell people to do is take a look at everything that you've got that's not specifically dedicated to a contract, and it needs to fall into either fringe, overhead, or G&A. So if it's not in fringe, the next place I look is, is it in G&A? Is this a cost I need to spend to run the business itself? And if it's not in fringe or G&A, then it's probably in overhead. But there's a game to this in a pricing game that if you don't understand those differences, you're going to bid wrong, you're going to overbid, and you're not going to be competitive. And um, just for general purposes for small business, fringe is 25 to 30%. Overhead could be any variation of numbers. And uh, G&A is usually 10 to 15%. And then you have to have profit. But that's enough numbers. What else do you want to hear about DCA compliance? Oh boy. So what do you, (laughs) so what do you do? First of all, when, when should you get a DCAA letter or a DCAA audit or when, you know, when somebody says, are you DCAA compliant? What do you do? That's a great question. So DCAA audits prime contractors, meaning a contractor that's doing business directly with the U.S. government, when the contracting officer orders an audit. And so the contracting officer, if you're bidding on a cost plus contract, might require that. But otherwise, you've got to figure out a way to get DCAA to do an audit on your company. And you can't call up DCAA and say, hey, we're ready to have our accounting system review because they're looking at it saying, well, you don't even have any government business. Why should we waste our time and energy doing that? number one. And number two, they'd say, well, the contracting officer has to order that audit. The contracting officer is only going to order it if you're in the running, seriously in the running to win a contract or you're getting ready to win one. And so you want to be getting set up to be DCA compliant. But since you can't request it yourself, what I've told people to do, I help them go look at what the requirements are, help them get it set up to meet those requirements. And then I tell them to start completing. There's actually an audit document called the SF-1408, which SF stands for standard form, I think. And I tell them, let's go through that document. Let's fill it out as if you were preparing it to send to a DCA auditor. And we can start documenting that as part of our accounting capabilities. And we can go through the steps so you understand it so that if someday one of these big primes says, show me your DCA compliant, there's a checkbox that says, have you been audited? And you would say no. Right. And then but you could still prove that you met the requirements by showing that you went through the checklist yourself. You understood what those terms meant and you can document all of those and that you've prepared that ahead of time so that the day that the phone rings from DCAA saying they want to do an audit, you've got it ready and you send it and you're good to go. Yep. And that's I mean, that's the key. We we see a lot of contracts. Uh, there's some RFPs that come out and they say, you have to have an audited accounting system already. You have to have your DCAA letter, as it were. There are a lot that say you have to be auditable and 
uh, there may be a pre-award audit done. I think at this point, because there are so few DCAA auditors, that even those of us who have approved accounting systems aren't necessarily getting audited every year, or at least for our accounting system. We certainly have plenty of DCAA audits or reviews for timekeeping, for our incurred cost submissions, for our, I don't know, whatever else they decided that that given day that they need to review for us. But those accounting system audits used to be done, if I'm correct, once a year and updated. And they're expecting all the government procurement folks are, are looking for that letter to be within a year's time frame of when you're submitting, but you're never going to have that. So really, you're going to have to go through that, that process and give that standard form in, even if you've had an accounting audit done, accounting system audit done, if it hasn't been within a year. So you're kind of not you're certainly in a, on, on a back foot a little bit if you haven't had it done even once. But I think most most RFPs at this point allow for that review to be done pre-award just because there's no way that anyone has it done every year you know, through the, through the life of their contract. Well, you're absolutely right about that, Lauren, that um, theoretically you're supposed to be able to get that letter every year. But in the entire time I've been in government contracting, I've never seen DCAA show up and do an annual one. I think it's possible they do it at the large prime contractors, but those large prime contractors actually will have a DCAA office in their building. Yep. So it's a different game. So for small business to be competitive, you need to find a way to to get these certifications. And you're right, there's a letter. And what I've always been told when people have asked me about that is that they'll submit, here's the letter we had from three years ago. And typically the contracting officer will, you know, take another look at it and yep. say, yeah, we can accept this. Yep. And there's also a lot of confusion among contracting officers, among other people giving you advice about what the rules are. And you just have to be prepared and know what, know how to respond. Right. Um, but you're right. Mo- the first step is always what's called this FT- SF-1408 audit, mm-hmm. which is a pre-award survey. They'll normally come back later after you've started working the contract and verify that things are, are in order. But other than that, until you get to a certain size, you don't have to worry about billing systems audits and timekeeping audits and all of that. But there's there's definitely a lot to keep up with. Hey, one last thing I wanted to cover about DCA compliance before yeah. we wrap it up, because I know I'm not allowed to take your entire day. <laughs> I, I love talking about this stuff. Donna likes it even more. But this is really helpful stuff. So please keep going. Okay. So the last thing I want to mention is a big, big thing in government contracting, and it's that every person at a government contractor needs to complete a timesheet. Yes. The reason they do that is whether you're on a fixed price contract, a time and material contract, a cost plus contract, or you work in a support function, such as the president of the company, the human resources, accounting, any of those people, you have to fill out a timesheet. And here's why. The government is sending a lot of money every single month to pay for labor services that they buy from contracts. So they have to have a mechanism by which they can verify that that person truly showed up for work 
and here's the number of hours they worked on contract A. And oh, by the way, they left early in the day. And so they've got some time off. And did they work on Columbus Day or was that a holiday for them? All of these things get accumulated into the fact that as a government contractor, you have to have a timekeeping system. You can do a paper timekeeping system if you do it with pen and ink and you document your process. Most companies use an online timekeeping system, and there's so many different levels of sophistication for that. But to me, what's most important is those timesheets should also drive your payroll process. And the big kicker with government contracting is when a company records their labor cost in their accounting software, they need to be able to show how many hours, what labor category, which contract, sometimes a sub-level of that contract, and be able to tie that back to how their cost is recorded in their books. And that's like the biggest, giantest hurdle of all. And it takes a lot of sophistication because you've got a billing system, a payroll system, an accounting system, and a contract reporting system that all have to agree. And it's a it's a complex area. It gives me a headache to talk about it, but I could talk about it all day long, just yeah. like you. It's funny. I you know, I look back on this stuff. Now I'm hearing you talk and and I'm amazed at at what we tried to figure out and what we were able to figure out and do it well and looking back on it, you know, do it correctly even when we were tiny. But you know, these things are they're hard and they're complex and you've got to get them right even as a small business. They don't have to be automated, they don't have to be sophisticated, but they have to be right. And so, you know, it doesn't, you can hand jam it from, and in fact we did, where we had, there is actually a picture in kind of our picture file of the last day of paper time cards for in WWC history, where we had the paper time cards for at first, at least two or three, maybe four or five years of the firm, we did paper time cards. And then we went and and took that information from the scanned paper time cards in pen and ink and put it into our accounting system, which fed into our invoicing system, which fed, you know, I, I guess it was the invoicing that fed into the accounting and, and kind of cascaded from there. But it wasn't sophisticated. What it was was compliant. At every turn, it was compliant and it got more sophisticated as we went. So now we've got a big HRIS system as well as a a more standard government accounting system that that all of our employees use to to log their time. But it's still at every turn. You just had to make it compliant. Didn't have to be pretty, didn't have to be sophisticated, but had to be absolutely compliant. And again, we got early on, we got timekeeping audits two, three years into once we got on DCA's radar, you know, we had a bunch of people overseas. So I think it was a frolic and detour to do a a timekeeping audit on on site in Naples, Italy. So they came and, and did those a lot. And it was fine as long as you had the policy, as long as you had the system, and as long as you had people verifying that you were meeting your system. Again, didn't have to be sophisticated, but it had to be consistent and compliant. And so even as a small firm, you can do that. But I got to tell you, listening to you and thinking through how we figured that out, there's a lot of hard stuff to do in 
particularly in the accounting side. And this is why I'm so lucky to have Donna because she figured all this stuff out. But it's hard. It's really hard as a small firm to figure out how to do this. But if you figure it out up front, then you can keep growing it as you go. I think you've got a really good point about why it's so hard too, Lauren. It's because you're a small business owner and you chose to go into that area because you have a level of expertise. And in your case, in Donna's case, it was about policy. And you knew that in and out. But to set up accounting systems that do the accounting according to all the rules and then on top the DCA compliance is a gigantic challenge. And it becomes a hurdle. And this is one of the things that I've been talking to people about for the past several years is what are the barriers to entry for small businesses in federal contracting? And the accounting one is a really big hurdle. So anytime that I can help people figure out how to get there faster, that's what my goal is. And what I look at is how can I show you different ways to approach this this solution so that you're not constantly upgrading systems mm-hmm. and you've got something that's scalable and you got to have something that's fast because it's got to be fast so that you can pay your employees and bill your clients pretty close to the same day or else you're never going to have enough cash yep. in your company to grow. Yep. And that cash crunch is, it's like everything, when, when all of this stuff hit with COVID, I was like, There's no companies that get disrupted faster than government contractors if they can't invoice on time. We were worried in COVID that they wouldn't be able to pay, regardless of whether we could invoice, because, you know, we've been a geographically distributed remote firm for 15 years now. So we we COVID didn't really stop us on our back, you know, headquarters office side because everyone worked from home already for the most part. But I was terrified that the government wouldn't be able to pay us because all the people in DFAS, for example, were all sent home and who knows what their systems were going to be like. So the the cash flow crunch on COVID, I think a, a bunch of us were really nervous about. We didn't end up having as much of a problem as we thought we would. Um, DFAS was was pretty good, actually, about about switching over to remote work. But but it is scary and you got to do it right. And you're right. you got to scale the, the systems in a way that allows for you to grow quickly instead of uh, instead of changing that system every you know year or two. That Changing those systems are that's probably one of the most painful things we went through as a company is changing over. You know, we had QuickBooks. I don't even want to tell you for how long. I think for 14 years, 13 or 14 years, we were able to to manage off of QuickBooks with some overlays that we made, but switching over was overwhelmingly painful. Oh, I can definitely appreciate that because there have been times where I've run into and it's like, to me, once you get up about 20 or 30 people on QuickBooks, it's not that it's not working. It's that if you don't switch now, it's going to be exceedingly painful. Yeah. But anyway, so I'm so glad that you had me on this um, session today and gave me an opportunity to talk to people about government contracting, which is my funnest thing to do. Um, And anybody that wants to talk to me, I'm on LinkedIn, Jenny W. Clark. 
and we've got a LinkedIn group there for people that are in government contracting. So if people will connect with me, I'll send you an invite because like Lauren, my goal is to make information available to the broadest number of people so they can be successful. And uh, Lauren, I just love what you're doing with the podcast, you and Donna. Um, people are hearing things from a different perspective, and it's definitely a voice they, they needed to hear. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And thank you for, you did my job for me. I was just about to ask you, hey, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, but you are on LinkedIn constantly. I see you on LinkedIn all the time. And that is really the best place to connect with you. I would strongly suggest connecting with Jenny if you are in GovCon anywhere in your kind of trajectory as a small business to a not small business. Um, Jenny has been a, an incredible resource to us and a great friend through this crazy journey that we've that we've had. So Jenny, thank you for everything you do for small businesses, for GovCon, and, and I really appreciate your time today. All right. Well, thanks so much, Lauren. Talk to you again soon.